Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. I've spent 20 years working with and getting to know the people who've made water their life's work. And I created this podcast to allow you, the listener, to get to know them as well. Since this is our first podcast, a few notes on what this show is and is not. The object of this show is to get people beyond the abbreviated sound bites and two line quotes in order to provide a long form vehicle that allows us to get to know the guest, not just serve an agenda. To that end, the title Water for Fighting is a bit of a misnomer because my goal is to do very little actual fighting. I want the guest on my show to talk about their experiences and the opinions as they wish to express them, not as I wish them to. Though I may challenge guests to offer deeper insights and provide more clarity, I see my role as more of a facilitator, not an opponent. And though I may disagree with certain opinions or policy prescriptions offered by my guests, I leave it to you, the listener, to determine what you take away from these conversations in the end. Now that's out of the way, on to the good part. In my mind, it's only fitting that my first guest is someone who could easily be described as the godfather of water management in Florida, an interesting title for someone originally from Texas. I'm talking about Henry Dean. And if you've been around water issues over the last 40 years, you know who he is. Henry has the distinction of serving under five Florida governors, beginning with Reuben Askew and ending with Jeb Bush. Henry was the first person to head up two different water management districts in his career, the St. Johns River Water Management District and the South Florida Water Management District before retiring in 2005. Henry now serves as a county commissioner in St. Johns County and was kind enough to spend some time with me talking about some of the history of water management in Florida. Again, this is my first shot at recording a podcast, so try to forgive my feelings as a podcaster and an interviewer. I'll get better, and for whatever I lack in skill, my guest more than makes up for this with his invaluable experience and wisdom. Let's jump right into our conversation in progress. Were you doing any work? You were. You came. One one thing I found was was funny. Uh, I asked Frank because I was looking at your bio um, that you're kind of to send, and I said. Henry is Henry from Iowa? He said, "Yeah." I said, "There's no way that accent is from Iowa." And he said, "I don't know. It's like I think." <laughs> um, and so it, it took until you did the uh, that oral history with those two fellows from University of Florida that made a lot more sense. Uh, you're from Abilene, Texas, right? <laughs> yeah, that's where I was born and raised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you finished high school in Iowa. Is that right? Or did you? Yeah, I'll give you the quick Reader's Digest version. So I was the result of a World War II romance. (laughs) My mother was an Iowa farm girl that upon graduation from nursing, College of Nursing, she joined the Army the next day and served three years in the Army Air Corps as an Army Air Corps nurse on ADAC, one of the Aleutian Islands, and met my father, who was from Abilene, Texas. And they struck up a romance, got married, but in 1945, you didn't go back to the wife's hometown, you went to the man's hometown, the husband. So they got married and went back to his hometown of Abilene, Texas. And then I was born in 47, and uh, we lived in Abilene until 1962. So when I turned, the summer I turned 15, and before I started 10th grade, uh, they de- they decided to move to Iowa, back to her home state, since she'd grown up on an Iowa farm. And that's when I went to high school and then stayed in Iowa City and went to the University of Iowa to college. And the entire time I uh, complained about the uh, blizzards each winter getting worse and worse and worse. So as I was finishing college, I made a conscious decision that if there's any way I could pull it off, I was going to do two things. I was going to move to Florida, and I was going to go to law school. And I was fortunate enough to get accepted to FSU Law School and started in the fall of 71, which coincidentally is 50 years ago last fall. So uh, that's how I ended up from Texas to Iowa to Florida. Uh, but with the full intent of when I moved to Florida to start law school, the full intent of staying in Florida, not going back to the Iowa blizzards. Okay. Was that, was that pre-intended? So you, you go from Iowa, it's like, I'm getting out of the blizzards. I'm going to Florida for law school. 
Was there something other than just staying out of the cold that drew you? What was there something about the Florida environment um, that you thought about when you were either at school or before you got? Well, there? that's a, a very interesting question with a kind of an interesting answer. When I was in college in 1967, I was in my either sophomore, junior year, it doesn't matter. But in the in this in the summer of '67. I had a buddy from Chicago I met that was at the University of Iowa, but he was from Chicago. And his, his family, for a number of years, when he was growing up, took from Chicago a summer vacation to the Keys, uh, Big Pine Key, and, to be specific. And so for the first time in his life, his father was going to let him take the boat by himself because he was now 20 years old. And he invited me. He said, have you ever been to Florida? Nope, never been, never been. Well, want to go on this trip? And so in August of 67, he, his younger brother, and myself and one of his other close friends, four of us, we trailered a 16 and a half foot Boston whaler from Chicago down to Miami. And we sailed in this 16 and a half foot Boston whaler across the Gulf Stream over to Bimini, stayed three nights three days, three nights at Bimini, had the time of my life, had never saw anything like it in my life. Then we came back to Miami and trailered it down to Big Pine Key, spent three days, three nights on Big Pine Key at the Old Wooden Bridge Fishing Lodge, which I think is still there. And the Old Wooden Bridge goes over to uh, No Name Key, but it's no longer there. It got lost in a storm. So I went back to Iowa and I said, that's when I made the conscious decision that if there's any way I mean, I'd never had as much fun in my life as that trip to both Bimini and Big Pine Key. And so I was on a mission at that point to move to Florida. And I also had uh, a desire to go to law school, but for no particular specific reason. I wasn't thinking about corporate law, personal injury law, any, I, I just thought it would be good to have a law degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do remember thinking that um, the year that I started law school and decided to apply to law school first, I actually had read a, a magazine article about the opening, soon to open Disney World in Orlando and looking out at it now. And uh, I thought, you know, Florida with Disney now, because Disneyland in L.A. had been a real big success, that if Disney World really does as well as Disneyland, there's going to be a lot of growth and a lot of development and a lot of activity that I might be a part of. But I wasn't necessarily thinking government. I was thinking more of private attorney work. But all that together, if that makes sense, that's what, between the weather and the idea of living in Florida in a beautiful state and with growth potential, is what uh, led me to, again, uh, apply to FSU. And I also applied to FSU. It's the only school I applied to. And the reason is it was in the capital. And I thought that if, if you're going to move to a new state and you're going to be a lawyer, it'd be good to learn as much as possible. You got the Supreme Court, the legislature, the governor's office. You, you could learn a little bit about not only history, but also what current affairs. So all that led me to uh, start law school at FSU. And I guess that's where kind of that the, the story starts, doesn't it? It's, yeah. it's you've had this, uh, you had enormous career that continues now in a different way as an elected official. Um, but tell me about where you go from law school and the idea that you've got uh, the legislature, the Capitol is there, the Supreme Court. Uh, was it by happenstance or did you meet someone, a professor in law school, that turned you on to the politics side of it? Well, yes, uh, but it was more it was more introducing me to uh, growth management and land use and property rights, property values versus the public interest and the whole issue of growth management. When I started law school, I was uh, one of the first courses you take as a freshman is real property. And uh, the general, I guess, uh, normal uh, way to teach real property is you learn about fee simple and how property contracts are drawn up and how you pass property from A to B. That's sort of real property, freshman law school, real property. But we had a very interesting 
real property professor. His name was Gil Fennell, and he was, oddly enough, from Texas, where I grew up. And so we immediately bonded because we both had grown up in Texas. He was a brilliant scholar and knew everything there is to know about real property, but he also was interested in growth management, land use, and sort of the public interest in having a healthy, clean, uh, you know, quality life uh, for the public. We would have conversations between classes in the uh, law school, uh, in this little uh, lounge, the student lounge, where you sit around and have a cup of coffee, and some guys are playing bridge, others are talking politics. Gil and I would talk about what's going on in Florida in 1972, what's needed to make sure that we try to control growth and have good quality, well-planned, orderly growth. As I was finishing real property my freshman year of law school in the spring of 72, as you well know, the legislature passed landmark legislation that spring in 1972, the Water Resources Act, which added the three additional water management districts that already Swift Mud and South Florida were in existence under special act for different reasons, flood control in prior years. So Water Resources Act, the Land and Water Management Act, which was codified in Chapter 380, and uh, the first uh, the first legislation dealing with the idea of having a, a state comprehensive plan, Chapter 23. All those things were literally created in the 72 legislation, pieces of different pieces of legislation. And a lot of people refer to that as sort of the landmark year of uh, environmental legislation in Florida. And I'll never forget my old friend Wade Hopping, who was a long-term private attorney representing a lot of business interests, uh, called it an aberration. (laughs) But he and I joked about that. But nevertheless, so Fennell, Gil Fennell, the professor, um, really got my interest piqued. And so when there was a job opening, and I saw it on the law school bulletin board, a job opening for a research aid needed for the Elms Committee. What is the Elms Committee? The Elms Committee, it was a creation. It wasn't a standing committee, which exists, as you well know, for year and year and year in and year out forever. It was a select or special committee created for two years. And it was created as part of that landmark legislation in 72. The Elms Committee was the Environmental Land Management Study Committee, Elms for short. And so it was a two-year committee to look at any issues that the committee deemed very important and critical to growth management in Florida and come up with a final report to the legislature in December of 73 to take action uh, in the 74 legislative session. That was the sort of time clock they were given. So that committee was created as part of the 72 landmark legislation. So I guess not only am I a result of a World War II romance, but I'm the result of the of the landmark legislation and the creation of the Elms Committee, because that's where I got my first start. When the Elms Committee was created, they hired, uh, it was a, a wonderful committee, and among others, uh, Senator Bob Graham, state senator at the time from the uh, Miami Lakes, he was on the committee. Jim Shenberg from Tampa, a builder, a developer from Hillsborough County, and uh, a very well-known attorney in Miami, Alan Millage, who later became chairman of the South Florida Water Management District under Lawton Childs. Alan Millage was uh, appointed chairman by then Governor Askew. So the, they hired an executive director, Dan O'Connell, and he, among other things, uh, needed a, a, a halftime uh, research assistant, put a little three-by-five card on the uh, bulletin board of the law school long before the Internet and long before iPhones. So I saw that, thought, Hmm. After my discussions with Gil Fennell in real property class, talking about Florida's growth and Florida issues, I said, man, I'd sure like to do that if I could get the job. So I started working as a research aide to the Elms Committee. How big was the staff other than you had an executive director? The executive director, a research assistant, me, and a secretary. That has, that has some context. So I remember the three major assignments I had to work on, if I can remember them. One was doing research and a report on community development districts, CDDs. And another one was the uh, mandatory phosphate mining legislation, 
which may ring a bell with, you know, being from Swift Mud, all the phosphate uh, right. mines. Well, up until 1975, that, that was voluntary uh, reclamation. Nothing was ever required. And so I did my little research that's part of Elms Committee final report published in December of 73 has a chapter on mandatory phosphate reclamation laws, strip mining, using the Pennsylvania law as an example. So CDDs, mandatory phosphate reclamation, and then the other was transfer of development rights, which was uh, working in some states at the time. So that was part of my research, but most of my assignments involved making coffee and making sure the copying uh, machine was full of paper. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But is that when you caught uh, uh, the bug? Uh, You ended up working, I think, directly for Governor Askew, right? Yeah, I was definitely, I became very, very interested in Florida's growth, where we where we are going, how growth is taking place, what our environmental laws are, are they working, do they need improvement? Because our, our environmental laws in Florida really uh, only started uh, in 1967 with the repeal of the Bulkhead Act and the passage of the first minimal dredge and fill permit, which was housed in the Department of Health long before DEP was created or DER. So uh, where are we? Where are we going? What's needed? All those thoughts were in my mind as I, as I spent my, my last uh, year and a half in law school working on the Elms Committee. And, th- and then as, that, as the Elms Committee, we presented a final, I still have a copy of the original final report to the legislature dated December 73, of the Elms report, and when that was presented, and then that spring of '74 was my my last semester of law school, and I spent most of my time working with the Elms committee members and Dan O'Connell, uh, lobbying for the passage of the set of laws that were recommended in that report. Did you draft the physical legislation itself, or was it a policy prescription saying you, in order to do... It was mostly policy. I didn't get involved at that point in the actual uh, drafting of the legislation. I mean, we left that up to the bill drafters and uh, the committees that we did testify. We were testifying to committees and whatnot. So uh, I was so busy, literally, I mean, I was working a lot of hours on for the Elms committee as a you know, what turned into almost a full-time job but it was only a half-time job and going to class I forgot to interview uh, my senior year of law school I forgot to to actually interview for jobs because I thought I'd probably go into private practice but I had a keen interest in the environment but I really forgot to interview the only interview I had set up uh, interestingly enough was with the county attorney for Palm Beach County, Michael Small at the time in 1974, uh, to uh, join uh, the county attorney's office in the area of land use. And he had an interest in my background of Elms Committee work. It seemed like a good fit. Uh, But before I went down for an interview, I uh, had developed a close friendship with uh, the governor's environmental aide, Jay Landers. And uh, Jay Landers, uh, in the in the summer of '74, he'd been serving uh, for Askew's uh, first term as his environmental aide, uh, along with uh, Ken Woodburn, who was more of a biologist than a lawyer. And so uh, Jay and I had become very close because he attended all the Elms Committee meetings, representing the governor's office to listen and learn and add. And he pulled me aside and said, Henry, you know, he, well, he said, uh, what are you doing now that you're graduating from law school? And I said, well, I, I really haven't really done, given much thought to it. I haven't done any interviews. I'm sort of like kind of graduating without a job. So I said, I'm sort of no longer in law school and no longer have a job. I'm sort of on the street. And he said, well, he said, this is, this is uh, confidential. But the governor is going to appoint me uh, to head up the trustees, the Internal Improvement Trust Fund. The governor and cabinet, as you know, serve as the uh, trustees for all state-owned land, you know, uplands, submerged lands, whatever. So I'm going to be appointed to replace Joel Cooperberg as the head of trustees. So that means my job will be open on the governor's staff. And if you're interested, I'll recommend you, I'll recommend you to the chief of staff, Jim Apthorpe at the time, for an interview. 
And I said, wow, that, that would be, I mean, that would be a godsend. I'm, I'm speechless. And he said, oh, no, I think you'd be good at it. So anyway, he recommended me for an interview. And a week later, I interviewed. And two weeks later, I started. Then two weeks after that, I was literally in at the governor's mansion in the basement office with the governor Askew, uh, advising him on how to vote at the next cabinet meeting on DNR and trustee items. I thought the cabinet was where you stored your dishes. I had no idea. I had no real understanding of how the system worked, and particularly bi-weekly cabinet meetings and all the different agendas and the different agencies and the different members of the cabinet and what their role was. And it was really kind of uh, real, really eye-opening, but it really served as a wonderful springboard for me and the state government. And right. so I was literally uh, thrown into some pretty heavyweight decisions, uh, advising the governor literally on how to vote and why to vote at the, on this item at the next cabinet meeting. Yeah, I want to talk more about uh, more about Governor Askew because he was yeah. your first. Like, but you've worked for five heavyweight governors, and I'm like, it's a it's a string of very uh, folks that are are household names uh, for folks that know that know Florida. But uh, Askew was your first, and Bush was your last. Is that Governor Jeb Bush? Yeah, it was Askew, Graham, Martinez, Childs, and Bush. Right. In that order. Right. All very popular governors, um, and I think including Governor Askew. Oh, yeah. Um, very, very, very much so. Tell me a little bit about that, because you're, you're at the dawn of not just federal environmental law and water law, but Florida environmental law and policy and water law and policy. And, and you've parachuted from, you know, from out of nowhere, out of law school, um, pretty young. And now, and now you're in the basement office of, of Governor Askew. How did he, what was his philosophy of, of water and environmental and, and land issues at that time as he's trying to, to unravel that, that policy? Well, I think he was a visionary, and I say that because you, you really would have to go back and understand. I don't think the term environmental environmentalist was even a word. In 1974, I don't think the environment was really a word. It wasn't there yet. So point being, it was still a very conservative, and I'm not talking about Republican versus Democrat. I'm just talking about conservative small government. I mean, the state budget in 1974 was only probably $20 million. I mean, it was just bare bones. I mean, think about that. So, so Askew, Governor Askew, had some very interesting thoughts and, and discussions with us. And the, the one that stands out the most is this. We were having probably three or four or five of us as the st staff were, were meeting with him on an issue, and it, uh, it was starting to get in, involved in the environmental argument versus the economic argument, what's good for the economy or what's good for the environment. And Governor Askew looked around and said, guys, guys, let me, let me offer you a thought. Let me tell you something. You may not realize, he said, the environment and the economy are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are symbiotic. You can't have one in the long term without the other. Now, that stuck with me for 50 years because when you think about it, he was right. I mean, if we have overdevelopment and, to, and the economy is running rampant and we don't care about the environment, people are going to stop wanting to come to Florida. I mean, we've seen that with the blue-green toxic algae, right, in South Florida and the problems it caused. But if we go to the other extreme and have nothing but a clean environment and we don't support healthy business growth, we won't have the tax revenue to support the environment. And that's what was in his mind when he uttered those words to me 50 years ago. That was pretty visionary in 1974. It and it seems like he and and every governor since have been trying to find that balance. Yeah, I would I, at least the five I worked for. I can't speak with any real authority toward the governor since then because I didn't work for sure. him. But I can tell you that those five, regardless of their political affiliation, were all strongly committed to to reaching that balance in a very uh, a balanced way. I mean, they all cared about the environment and they all wanted to spawn more 
good, strong, clean industry, environmental growth, but not at the expense of destroying the environment. That's something that we as a state, as Floridians, grapple with, don't we? I mean, for all of these years, what is the balance? Um, everyone wants to, to protect springs and estuaries and bays and these other uh, beautiful natural uh, features. But at the same time, it's a it's a state that's grown. And you and I were just talking a little bit ago about when you started law school, it was what, 1970, 1971, somewhere in there. And you were saying that the population of Florida was six million, around six or seven million, right? And now it's and now it's what twenty two million? It's almost twenty two. In fact, uh, Ginger at Delgall gave the numbers out this morning in her openings. It's twenty one point eight million is the estimate today. Right, and I'll get to I'll get to kind of the how you see yourself in that picture now, but I want to go back yeah. a little bit uh, to some of that that service. So you're working with a visionary. Um, and you're doing good work and you're, you're at the, the dawn of this. And then that moves, then you move to a place. And I think most listeners may or may not know that today's Florida Department of Environmental Protection used to be two separate agencies and you were the top lawyer uh, for one of them. Can you explain the difference between the two that became DEP and, and then what you were doing? Yeah, at, there was environmental government reorganization in Florida in around 1970. And in 1970, the legislature through this government reorg act, basically they shifted around certain functions to put some functions that really had been in the Department of Health and uh, the Pollution Control Department into the Department of Natural Resources. And, the, and then they created DER, the Department of Environmental Regulation. So in essence, you had two different major agencies dealing with Florida's natural resources and environment. Every, everything, now Fish and Wildlife was set aside in the Fish and Game Commission at the time. That all has changed too. But at the time, everything dealing with Florida as natural resources and environment were housed in either Department of Natural Resources or the Department of Environmental Regulation. And that law took effect in 1975. In fact, I worked on that draft legislation with Ken Woodburn and Jay Landers when, uh, when I was on the governor's staff to uh, basically decide which functions should go in which of those two agencies. And that's what we presented to the legislative staff is here's the governor's recommendations. Were you part of developing the combination? I know you had moved on by that time. You were the, the top attorney at DNR for the five years. Five years. Right. First, before I leave DNR so quickly, was was there something that was a big issue that you were tackling as that top lawyer at the time. There were several legislative issues, one of which was the Markable Record Title Act, and there was a move by the phosphate companies to get, convince the legislature uh, to apply the Markable Record Title Act to sovereign submerged lands because it involved the Peace River lawsuit, which was a huge case in front of the state Supreme Court. But uh, several years in a row, I would testify on behalf of the governor and cabinet to the Senate committee that was basically the Judiciary Committee that, as you know, uh, would take an issue like this up and testify that the Markable Record Title Act should not extinguish the the state's interest in sovereign submerged lands being whether they're freshwater lakes or rivers or three miles in the Atlantic and nine miles in the Gulf, three leagues. So that was always an interesting debate. And we finally won that case in the state Supreme Court in May of 87, and I had been at the St. John's River Water Management District for at least two and a half years, and it finally wound its way up to the state Supreme Court, and they ruled in the state's favor, and I'll never forget that afternoon, I was in my office in Palatka at the Water Management District, and five state senators called me on a conference call and and uh, wanted to share their happiness and glee in the victory of that case, and I think it was Tom McPherson and Ken Jenny and Frank Mann who just passed away, unfortunately, and George Stewart, the state senators at the time that were very much cognizant of what the impact of the Markable Record Title Act would do to eliminate the state's claims to sovereign submerged lands. The other interesting one involving sovereign submerged lands was in, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of or uh, remember the uh, Getty oil permit that was in front of the cabinet to uh, actually drill for oil in East Bay. Pensacola. Oh, wow. 
Big case. I mean, uh, 81, uh, that issue was taken up by the governor and cabinet, and we had an eight-hour hearing, and uh, the uh, governor and cabinet voted unanimously to deny the permit to drill. But that was a, that was a big issue. Uh, a lot of people from the Pensacola area came to that particular meeting and spoke. But anyway, those are a couple of the items and, uh, that were interesting. And I want to get to uh, some of that water management district experience, but I was thinking uh, to myself, one of the most valuable learning tools that I had, and I started in uh, the Senate and then the, the governor's office, but I doing environmental, and I was an environmental analyst, and you remember the old days, yeah. uh, well, old days for me, not for you, uh, <laughs> and, w and I realized that uh, that I didn't know as much as I thought I would until until I went to the to the Southwest Florida Water Management District and worked there, and I realized the difference between the work that I was doing as an analyst, whether it was um, learning from folks like yourself, uh, other executive directors, but it wasn't until I saw how that worked on the ground in places like uh, you know, Polk, Polk County and Hardy County, uh, Highlands County. Um, was that a big learning difference for you as well? You spent this time, and you were you're at you're working immediately at a high level from the time you're in law school. Uh, you get out, you're working directly for uh, uh, Governor Askew. You move to this really large state agency, um, and now you're headed to East Central Florida, you know, and Northeast Florida. And you've got to run. You've got to run a district. You're an attorney, and at this point, a, you know a heavyweight in these policy, these environmental policy issues. What was that that difference like when you move when you move from Tallahassee to to St. John's? Well, for me, the biggest difference is that at the St. John's River Water Management District, we had at the time 19 counties in North, as you said, in Northeast and East Central Florida, because the St. John's River uh, it meanders for roughly 300 miles. It starts in the uh, the headwaters start uh, outside and west of Vero Beach and go north up until through Jacksonville into Mayport and discharge into the Atlantic. My point is that with 19 counties, and each county basically has a voice in a way on the water management board, as you well know, having run Northwest and worked for SWIFTMUD, that you have to be very attuned to the local government's needs, those local basins and those local needs by the different county commissions and the different business interests. It's really uh, what I what I sometimes refer to as retail politics. It's a lot like the county commission that I serve on now. You, you really are on the front lines of the battle. You're not sitting in some, uh, you know, gold dome in Tallahassee issuing edicts to the to the state and sort of insulated in a way if that makes sense that's that was the difference that I, I and I enjoyed it I enjoyed working directly with citizens groups the friends of the Wakaiva the friends of the upper basin different uh, interest groups in each little pocket of the district and uh, that was uh, fun and, and, and exciting um, but again, in Tallahassee, my experience at the state agency level and in the governor's office is you were pretty insulated from that level of discussion. What you, now, what you weren't insulated from, as you well know, was the legislature because you, you know, they pulled the purse strings. And if you're with an agency, and in fact, part of my role, in addition to being general counsel at DNR, was to be the legislative, uh, probably the number two legislative person, because Don Duden, the assistant executive director, was the chief lobbyist. But I tagged along as his legal advisor and also testified on new occasions, but, you know, uh, you basically tried to react in a very positive way to the legislature uh, because they really are the, I always understood from law school and ever since the legislature of this state sets the policy and the executive branch carries it out. And those who get confused about that don't last long in Tallahassee. That's a definitely a good, uh, good point. You're at St. John's. Yeah. You're probably the long. It was probably the longest-serving single district at the t at the time, 
for an executive director, 17 years. 17 years. 17 years. Yeah, almost to the day, but yeah. And so, and I'm going to fast forward, it's partly because it's, you know, it's where my memory comes in to, into the picture. I hate to, to gloss over all that important work at, at St. John's, like, but I want to, you know, I want to get to some of these, these larger issues and probably in my mind, one of the biggest turning points for water environment in Florida, at least from the perspective of somebody that worked for Governor Bush in the governor's office and since, and, you know, in different agencies, including two water management districts. And that's when you went to the South Florida Water Management District. Uh, and that was in 2001. Right. right. Yeah. May, May of 2001. So you, you make the switch. It's a little farther South Palm beach from Palatka. How did that, how did that happen? Governor Bush actually asked you to move. Did he not? He did. And I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Cause I mean, the governor did not call me directly and personally. What happened is I was actually, oddly enough, having a meeting in Palatka on the river on the St. John's River with then Mayor John Delaney from Jacksonville in uh, 2001, in May of 2001. And my secretary, this is long before cell phones were working properly, at least in Palatka, and my secretary got a message to me that David Struess was on the phone and was trying to reach me frantically or quickly. And David was the secretary of DEP at the time uh, after the merger bill. So David Struz calls me uh, in May of 01 and said, uh, and he'd been on board two years since Jeb had become governor. So we'd become, you know, reasonably good friends talking uh, on a pretty regular basis. And he calls me and I thought he might be calling about a George Pacific uh, permit, a water, water supply permit, CUP or whatever. He said, how long have you been at the St. John's Water Management District, Henry? And I said, well, uh, let's see, 17 years this, this month. And I was thinking ahead, hmm, why is he asking me that? And I got very defensive and I thought to myself, well, I know what the next question is or the next statement is, well, we think you've probably served long enough and it's time to move on and right. find new opportunities. In other words, we got our own guy. So I, that's what I was expecting. And he said, instead, he said, well, the governor and I think that you've really done a good job at St. John's being able to work for different governors and different administrations and different political parties. And you seem to be able to keep things moving at a relatively calm pace and get things done like the Upper Basin Project, the restoration of the St. John's River. And um, we're having some issues in South Florida right now. Uh, we passed this major legislation called SERP and we're having some management issues. And so we, we're going to make a change and the governor really thinks that it would be wonderful if you would transfer down there and take over. So SERP for the folks that are listening stands for Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Program Plan. Or, yeah, Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan. Sterp. So, uh, and by the way, that's a that was the at the time the largest environmental restoration effort, both uh, from a dollar standpoint and a space standpoint. It was eight billion dollars, with a B, and the largest in the world as far as a environmental restoration. So it was a big deal, both in Congress, it passed Congress and it passed the state legislature the same year because it's a joint 50-50 project. And that was the uh, the subject matter when uh, uh, David told me that the governor really wanted me to, if I would, transfer. He didn't order me to go, but it was probably as close to an order as you could get without an order. It was like, we really, really think that it would be good if you would go down and run that. And I said, to, I said to David, I said, well, because I, I, I've always had an, in, always in the back of my mind, the whole time I was at St. John's, I had an interest in following Everglades restoration because it's kind of a big deal. Uh, and so, uh, you know, how do you do it? And what needs to be done? And can we ever, you know, restore partial restoration of the annual hydro period and how all that works together? I said, David, I, I'm I'm intrigued. I'm interested, but I said I I have to tell you I have to I have to go home tonight and ask my wife because I can't make a move of that nature without getting support from her. Well, that's understandable. Well, just call us in the morning and let us know. <laughs> okay. So I went home that night and I talked to my wife, and I said the governor wants me to transfer to uh, South Florida Water Management, and she said and she said, well, where's the headquarters? And I said in West Palm Beach. Then she said, well, how close is that to Boca Raton? 
And I said, well, maybe 20 minutes. And she said, well, how soon can we leave? <laughs> and the reason that she said, how soon can we leave, is because her only daughter uh, at the time lived in Boca Raton and single had a, and working for uh, NCCI, which is a major actuarial firm headquartered in Boca Raton. And so uh, it was really my, my wife's uh, interest in getting close to her only daughter that led to my transfer from Palatka to West Palm Beach. And so that's what, but I, I wanted to go, I wanted to do it, but I wasn't going to do it without my full support of my wife. And so you, you moved down. My recollection was that you and Governor Bush, now I didn't know you in context to, you know, Governor's Askew or Graham or Martinez or, or Childs, but my, you know, my sense was that you and he were pretty close, that you talked a lot, um, that you had a really solid understanding of what he expected from you. And he set you set you loose to, to do what you did best, which was run a district. Is that sound? I would say that's that's pretty accurate. Yeah. I mean I certainly I had tremendous admiration for Jeb Bush as a governor. Part of that probably was because I had such admiration for his father, the president. I mean I, I had a lot of admiration and respect for the Bush family. And uh, that only increased over time. He was a he was a uh, easy boss to understand. He made it very clear to me whenever any discussions came up and I had the opportunity to meet with him, he made it very clear to me what his objective was, what his goal was, and how he expected us at the Water Management District to get it done. Right. And just to give folks uh, a sense of you, and I, and I tell this story uh, sometimes, I, I told you uh, before, I don't even know if you remembered it. I was a, a lowly analyst. I did water water management <laughs> you know, district policy and budget stuff. And I was tasked with, and this is 2004. Now this is a massive hurricane season for Florida. Uh, I think it was like four, four major hurricanes or close to major hurricanes crisscrossed Florida. Uh, three of them passed straight through uh, the gut of your district from, from different, from all different directions, it yeah. seemed. Right. So I was tasked with, with calling down and get, to get an update as one does to, to see how uh, the perspective of, of the district was and how things were going, uh, that you, y'all had it under control, obviously, but, um, but to just get an update. And I called the main, the main office number, cause I don't know who to call at that, you know, at that point. So I called the main number. I assume it got forwarded to the EOC or someplace and the, the voice and your voice is unmistakable. And, <laughs> and so you, you pick up the phone and say uh, something to, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it, something to the effect of, um, you know, South Florida Water Management District, uh, how am I help you? I said, is this Henry Dean? And you said, yeah. I said, well, why, why are you answering the phone? Uh, you've got what, 1800 employees at the time, something like that. And um, I don't know if you remember the conversation at all. It was it was brief, and you said, "Well, because I was closest to the phone," and and so that always struck me as uh, someone who was, in my mind, already a living legend in water management, uh, the godfather of water management, if you will. Uh, and it, does that represent? Uh, who you are as a person, who you were as a, a manager, you, you talk and you and I talked offline about hiring the best people and letting them uh, do what they do best. When I was in when I was in the military, the sign of a good officer, a good non-commissioned officer is that they would never ask someone to do something they weren't willing to do themselves. Is that kind of how you saw uh, your service at uh, the water management districts? Yeah, I, 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 I may be, I don't know, maybe somewhat unique in, in this sense that I, I'm a firm believer in, in, in uh, that everything's a team effort and I don't get hung up or caught up on organizational platitudes and, and the whatever you might call the prestige of being the executive director. Now, I've seen others who tend to do that, but I, I, I think that that takes away from reaching your goal as a team. And so I've always considered myself a team player, and if anything, a coach, not a uh, someone who sort of uh, manages by either uh, fear or negativity. So 
And a, a, a sort of credit to my mother, my mother, uh, having grown up in West Texas the, in the 50s, there was extreme segregation among the you know, whites and blacks. And my mother, having come from Iowa, on a small farm, she drilled into me when I was a young boy. I can't, I mean, I'm talking three and four years old. She started drilling into me that, that every person is created equally. Every person, black, white, brown, doesn't matter. And everyone should be given respect. And that, you know, you're, you're no better or no worse from any other person. Right. And so I sort of probably subconsciously carried that to your example. I mean, just because I was the executive director didn't mean I couldn't answer the phone. If I was closest, I ought to answer the damn phone. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that makes sense. It but does. that's it does. Uh, That's, way, you know, and I think that, that uh, regardless of whether it's the CEO of a multi-million dollar company or the janitor that comes in at night, each of those people need to be treated with respect. And that's what I tried to do as executive director. And I was very pleased the day I left uh, in 2005, the uh, head custodian of the South Florida Water Management District uh, came up to me, hugged me. And he, and he uh, I'm going to get a little sentimental myself here, but he hugged me and he, he started crying, well, tearing up. And he said, he said, Mr. Dean, I just want you to know that, that not only are you the first executive director who ever spoke to me, but you're also always asked about my family and my children. And that, that it meant a lot to me that it made him happy as a worker, that I was able to communicate with him as a person, if right. that makes sense. It does. Absolutely does. Uh, I always saw it as uh, as a, the chair doesn't belong to me. It belongs to, to yeah. someone else. It belongs to whether it be the, the, the counties um, that you work within, the governing board, a governor. They're the ones that, that decide and, and we're there to serve. But you served for 30 years and walking out that day, you're talking about leaving. Um is, was it hard for you to let go? I mean, I know you were ready, but was it hard to let go in that sense of you've been in the trenches now yeah. with these folks? You've done SERP, you've done Accelerate, you've got Kissimmee River restoration going at the time. Uh, you've got hurricane seasons that that in during that period were you know were significant. Was that hard to let go of? No, for me it really wasn't. I felt it was time. And I, and like you said, I, I didn't own that chair that the ED sits in. It, it was time for someone else to take over. And I was only 58 at the time. And I say that because I thought that, you know, I would find other things to do. And I did. And did. private consulting and uh, ultimately running for the county commission. And so I, I, uh, I was not, I, I was, if anything, I missed the people. I missed, I missed a lot of the team that I had built, that I had hired, that I had worked with. Uh, uh, you know, I had a core probably of 15 or 20 people that I worked with closely every day that were top-notch scientists, administrators, uh, dedicated uh, people. So that's, you know, I tried to stay in touch with most of them, but uh, that's that's what I missed the most. But it was, I did all I could in the five years I was there, or four years, four years, I guess. But anyway, I, I, I wasn't terribly saddened, but I felt like that I did as good a job as I could and was time to, you know, turn the reins over to someone else. Sure. And... I guess, but on that note, and whether it's uh, St. John's River Water Management District or South Florida, is there something that you look back on? I was like, gosh, if I'd if I'd had a little more time, that that bit of unfinished business. That it's not not that it was uh, necessarily has to be a failure, but just some uh, a disappointment or something you'd wish you had a little bit more time to. Well, I mean, what stands out more than anything to me personally. When I left in 05, by 05, we had actually uh, gotten the A1 reservoir from scratch since I arrived. We got the A1 reservoir uh, designed, permitted, and funded, and under construction. And so, and that was a big deal for the district and for the state because that was going to be the, the reservoir to capture discharges from the lake, Lake Okeechobee, and then send them south 
Okay, big deal. Mm-hmm. And so I was very pleased because that's the one thing, the one, the one directive that Jeb Bush, I'll never forget it, the one thing he told me that was high on his list when he asked me to transfer down there, he said, Henry, before you leave, before I leave, before I, Jeb Bush, leave office, I want that reservoir under construction. And he told me that in 2001. So he knew it was going to take a few years, but he didn't want it to take 20 years. Right. Well, guess what? It still ain't under construction, okay? Because after it was under construction for approximately a year and a half, two different environmental groups filed a lawsuit challenging the fact that a water reservation rule had not been done and therefore there wouldn't be enough water reserve for the environment and stopped the project. So that stopping of that of the A1 reservoir when I had spent so much effort, personal effort, hard effort to get it funded, permitted, and designed and under construction, as the governor had asked me to do, and then having seen the district spend $300 million for construction, and then have it stopped and not finished was definitely my biggest disappointment, which happened in 08, by the way, is when the reservoir got stopped. So you mentioned it already. You move. You, you you made yourself busy. Two thousand five comes and goes, but you're not done. You you become uh, a county commissioner in St. Johns County. What year? What year was that? First ran in twenty sixteen. Okay. And the second question is why? Why would you want to be a county commissioner? Well, it it probably is. Uh, self-evident that having served for 30 years in state government that I have sort of a, a, a desire for public service, if you will, and all the things I did or that I was involved in with my team at both St. John's and at South Florida. I really like to see good public policy implemented and I like to see public projects being done and help the people, help the resource. Right. So when I was approached in 2016 from a group of friends in St. John's County, would I consider running for commission? And I thought about it, and I realized that serving on a county commission in a growing county that's growing exponentially is, in some measure, sort of like being director of a water management district. It involves growth management. It involves infrastructure. It involves budget. It involves hiring the best public service uh, employees, and I think that uh, I felt like, and it's sort of my hometown, I mean, I've actually been a resident of St. John's County since 1984, I would commute to uh, Palatka to the water management headquarters, except for the four years I spent at South Florida, so I have a lot of friends in St. John's County, and I want to see the county maintain its beauty and its quality of life, even in the face of exponential growth. So I said, maybe I can help on the county commission, bring some value with my experience. And so I ran, won, served, uh, ran again in 2020, and was reelected to another four-year term. And I may or may not run again in 2024. A lot will depend on how I feel as far as my health and all the other factors you consider. Is there a main priority that that also uh, that you work on getting county commissioner, county government, you deal with everything? You deal with... Uh, It's general government. The difference between county government and water management government is water management's very focused on the four, as you well know, the four key mission statements. And with county government, I mean, it's garbage collection, it's water supply, it's, uh, you know, we're going to have fireworks this 4th of July. We're going to fund that. I mean, you, uh, someone may call that has a dead cat in their front yard. I mean, the list goes on forever. Right. But the key things I've been involved in are beach renourishment, again, based on my past history working with DNR when they administered that program, and uh, growth management, which goes back to my Elms Committee days. And so I have some background and history with what today are some of the key issues, growth management, beach renourishment, infrastructure, so land conservation. Interestingly enough, between my work at DNR and the St. John's River Water Management District, I was involved either directly or indirectly through staff with the acquisition of about a million and a quarter acres of conservation land statewide, over a million acres, 
and just in St. Johns County alone, about 70,000 acres, not knowing I was going to end up being a county commissioner later in life. But my point is that I want to try to maintain the beauty and the natural setting as much as possible, even though we're going to continue to grow uh, as more people want to move to Florida and more people that discover Florida, then they discover St. John's County that has a lot of good things going for it. Sounds like uh, it sounds like you've got you know gone to the end to go back to the beginning. You yeah, know? it's sort of full circle, isn't it? Right, right. You, I mean, all, all of the things that you know, you know, as you say, that you you know, you uh, poured into this career, every single one seems to you know to come in handy in terms of uh, tackling. Because we were just talking earlier about uh, the population difference, yeah. uh, and St. John's is certainly uh, no you know no different in that regard on a local level. And so uh, I assume that that's, you know, that's part of the thing that keeps you really interested is to, is because you, you have seen, you know, this uh, movie of sorts. Yeah, exactly. No, I would agree. I know you don't like to talk about your successors. You've said that before and I, and I completely understand. I, I, and I agree. It's not, it's not our turn anymore. It's, it's someone else's turn. But I want to talk a little bit about more so your philosophical approach to today. You mentioned before that, that Governor Bush and and David Strews noted that your ability to work across uh, political lines it doesn't matter who you know who you're serving you know if they're interested in uh, you know environmental uh, resource protection water protection and you know and development then you're there to serve um, yeah. is that something that you still find yourself being able to you know to to reach back to today has that uh, do you find that that's something that may be missing a little bit more these days from your perspective as a county commissioner? Well, right now in today's world, in 2022, I think there's certainly more partisan politics, particularly at the federal level mm-hmm. and to some extent at the state level. But uh, I think that uh, at, at the local level and particularly in St. John's County, I think uh, all of us involved locally are committed to maintaining a healthy balance, going back to the healthy balance of strong economic growth but a protecting our environment our natural resources because at the at the end of the day it goes back to governor askew's quote that i mentioned a a clean environment healthy water supply both in quantity and quality terms and uh, healthy lakes rivers streams and and marshes are not a uh, are not really a republican or democrat issue they're really the, the quality of life for all of us as Floridians. And, and I think all of us, whether we're Democrat, Republican, or Independent, we all want and, and really deserve a clean environment. And that's been my philosophy through my career, regardless. So I try to keep politics out of, uh, at least partisan politics, out of the debate and concentrate on what's best and what can we afford to meet our goal of having clean water, clean lakes, clean rivers, healthy beaches. Not to, to draw you into yeah. politics, but are you um, uh, optimistic or pessimistic or somewhere between in, in terms of environmental uh, and water issues in, in Florida? We've seen, we've seen, I think we've seen some progress in uh, the work that you're doing, that, that you did rather, and yeah. serve the Kissimmee River Restoration Project. Um, but there are still challenges and some serious ones, uh, Indian River Lagoon. Yeah. Uh, it's like, are you optimistic about the future? I, I, I am. I'm optimistic in this sense that I think that because of uh, a number of, uh, let's say, setbacks we've experienced over the last uh, six or seven years, including the uh, blue-green toxic algae outbreaks and the red tide, we've, I think, have, have had a, certainly a, a, in the last, uh, at least the last two years, and I think some of this, I, I will say, can be contributed to Governor DeSantis, I think he has, with his leadership, put a put a, a greater emphasis on the need to make sure we have clean water and a clean environment. And I think that with uh, the funding that has been uh, appropriated in the last two to three years uh, speaks to that with respect to particularly Everglades cleanup. I'm very disappointed that the uh, Indian River Lagoon seems to be regressing rather than progressing because I spent a lot of personal time at St. John's working on the Indian River Lagoon restoration and 
and uh, I, I hope there's some some novel ideas that are being tried. I think uh, basically planting oysters, believe it or not, in the Indian River Lagoon may be its salvation because they take up a huge amount of nitrates that otherwise lead to algae blooms that cover the you know the sunlight and kill the seagrass. But I, I'm 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 I'll probably always be hopeful. I'm kind of a glass half full, not half empty kind of guy. But I, but I think we've made some progress in the last two or three years that we seemed to, I don't know if it was because of uh, all the lawsuits or just the inability for all the different stakeholders to come together, but really from, I'd say from 2008 until 2018, we had a 10-year period of sort of litigious, bickering, fighting lawsuits, failure to pass bipartisan legislation, appropriations. I think that has, has turned the corner a bit, and I'm, I feel pretty good about the direction we're going now. I think we'll leave it uh, on that note. Henry Dean, Commissioner of St. John's County, living legend. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. It was great to have this conversation. Well, me too. Enjoyed it. Thanks again to Henry Dean for joining me for our inaugural episode. What a great way to kick things off. You've been listening to the Water for Fighting podcast. You can reach me at flwaterpod at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at flwaterpod with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sorn for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics as well as technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for this podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check the band out live or wherever amazing music is sold. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer. Water closer.